please turn to 1 Peter chapter 3. This morning we're going to be looking at 1 Peter chapter 3 verse 18 through to the end of the chapter. The title of my sermon is Saved by Water. Saved by Water. Let's have a look at those verses now. For Christ also have once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit, by which also he went and preached unto the spirits in prison, which sometime were disobedient, when once the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was a-preparing, wherein few, that is, eight souls, were saved by water. The like figure, whereunto even baptism, doth also now save us, not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience towards God, by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is gone into heaven and is on the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers be made subject unto him. Last week in our studies in the Apostle Peter's first epistle, we finished off by looking at chapter 3 and verse 18. And I'm going to go through it again now. Let's have a look at verse 18 again. For Christ also have once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. An important thing to understand from that is not that Christians suffer for well-doing, to quote verse 17 there, in the same way that the Lord Jesus Christ suffered and died on the cross for well-doing, not at all. It's not a case of us, um, well, Jesus has gone before us, he suffered on the cross, let's go and do likewise. That's not how to look at it. Rather, as a result of Jesus redeeming you with his own precious blood, God may be pleased to call upon you to suffer for righteousness' sake. That is something to rejoice about and not lament over or, or to be afraid of. But the very fact that Jesus has laid down his life for you, pouring out his precious blood for you as a sacrifice for your sins. As a new creature in Christ, you may be called upon by God to suffer for righteousness' sake. But the two things are different. Christ suffering on a cross, bearing away your sins, and you suffering um, various hostilities in this world, two different things. Certainly you do suffer the reproach of Christ, but it's not um, what you're doing isn't a picture of what went on at the cross as such. Moving on to verse 19, the Apostle Peter said by which also he went and preached unto the spirits in prison. I may as well warn you right now that what we shall be looking at today, from verse 19 onwards, is generally considered to be amongst the most difficult passages in the whole Bible to understand. 
and to accurately interpret. Consequently, interpretations of this passage do vary somewhat. For the sake of time and also for the sake of my desire not to cause too much confusion, I'm not going to give you all the various explanations that are offered by the commentators, the Bible scholars and so on. Also, I most certainly do not claim infallibility for for what I'm about to bring to you this morning. The first thing to consider are the words by which. By which, you see that in verse 19, by which also he went, Jesus went and preached unto the spirits in prison. Whom or what does by which refer to? That's a good start, isn't it? A glance up to verse 18 gives the answer as being the spirit by which Jesus was quickened or made alive. Therefore, looking again at verse 19, the Lord Jesus Christ went and preached unto the spirits in prison by the spirit. And that raises various questions such as, who are the spirits? Where is that prison? Who preached to the spirits in prison? Perhaps it's time to look at the next verse and that might give us some answers. We'll go to verse 20. Which sometime were disobedient when once the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah while the ark was preparing, wherein few, that is, eight souls were saved by water. Those spirits were disobedient back in Noah's time, which is reckoned to have been about two and a half thousand years before the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that leads to some interesting explanations. There are people who say that those spirits in prison are fallen angels. And there are two reasons that I know of that they give for that. When you turn back to the main chapter concerning the evil that was going on in Noah's time, Genesis chapter 6, we are told in verses 1 to 4 that the sons of God had sexual relations with the daughters of men and bare them children. The sons of God are understood by some to be fallen angels. But I would say that that kind of thinking belongs to fantasy fiction, unless you believe that two entirely different creatures are able to produce offspring. It makes far more sense to understand the sons of God having sexual relations with the daughters of men in Genesis chapter 6 as meaning that godly people intermarried with ungodly people. Also, those who support the fanciful idea that the spirits who were disobedient back in Noah's time are fallen angels appeal to 2 Peter chapter 2 verses 4 to 8. We can look at that, it's only a few pages on. (coughs) Let's have a look at 2 Peter chapter 2 verses 4 to 8.
For if God spared not the angels that sinned, but cast them down to hell, and delivered them into chains of darkness, to be reserved unto judgment, and spared not the old world, but saved Noah, the eighth person, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood upon the world of the ungodly, and turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them with an overthrow, making them an ensample unto those that after should live godly, ungodly rather, and deliver just lot, vexed with the filthy conversation of the wicked, for that righteous man dwelling among them, in seeing and hearing, vexed his righteous soul from day to day with their unlawful deeds. What these people fail to see is that those verses that I've just read to you give details of three unconnected events. First of all, the passage speaks about the angels that sinned and that points back to the rebellion of some of the angelic host along with the devil long before Noah's time. Secondly, in that passage, we see God's judgment upon the whole world in Noah's time. And then thirdly, we see the judgment of God upon Sodom and Gomorrah. Three different events. As such, the angels that sinned and were cast down to hell has nothing to do with the flood in Noah's time. Let's turn back now to 1 Peter chapter 3 and look at verses 19 and 20 again. By which also he went and preached unto the spirits in prison, which sometime were disobedient, when once the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was a-preparing, wherein few, that is, eight souls, were saved by water. For me, I say for me, and as I've already said, I'm not claiming infallibility here, the spirits that were in prison and that were preached to by the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, refers to the all the people who heard the Gospel of Christ being proclaimed by Noah who had the Spirit of Christ in him. To quote chapter 1 and verse 11, it speaks of the prophet of old having the Spirit of Christ in them when they preached. And I'd say that that was the same thing that happened with Noah. He preached to the world and he preached by the Spirit of Christ, the Holy Spirit. And incidentally, Noah is described as a preacher of righteousness in 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse 5. So when Noah preached and proclaimed the gospel to a disobedient, wicked world, only eight people, including Noah, repented and were saved. As for the rest of the world's population, they perished and their disembodied spirits are now in prison. In other words, they are now in hell. Noah was 600 years old by the time God flooded the earth. 
As such, people would have heard Noah preaching a message of repentance over many, many years, even whilst he was building the ark. But still, they disobeyed the gospel and they perished. It has been calculated that it took Noah about 75 years to build the ark. That speaks volumes about the long-suffering of God. Every blow of Noah's axe and hammer during those 75 or so years was a call by God to the people of the world to repent of their wickedness. According to verse 20, the eight who were saved were saved by water. Now that's an interesting statement, isn't it? When you think that the whole world actually perished in water. Except, of course, for the eight souls who were in the ark. I don't think you can separate the ark from the water. After all, the fact of the matter is that the eight souls who were saved by water were in the ark. As to what it was that the eight souls were saved from, the answer, I would have thought, was death by drowning. Also, it can be said that the water delivered those eight from a world of wickedness. We shall move on to verse 21. The like figure whereunto even baptism doth also now save us, not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience towards God by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Peter was saying to the Christians that as Noah and his family were saved by water, baptism doth also now save them. Similarly, in Acts chapter 22 and verse 16, Ananias said to the Apostle Paul, Arise and be baptised and wash away thy sins, calling on the name of the Lord. In Mark chapter 16, verse 15 and 16, the Lord Jesus Christ said to his apostles, Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptised shall be saved. And in Acts chapter 2, verse 38, Peter said to the crowd whom he had been preaching to, on the day of Pentecost, repent and be baptised for the remission of sins. It very much sounds like we are saved by means of water baptism, especially when you read the whole of 1 Peter, chapter 3, verse 21, which is always a good thing to do. It's pointless just reading a little bit of a verse. Let's look at the whole of verse 21. The like figure whereunto even baptism doth also now save us, not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience towards God by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
by saying that baptism is not the putting away of the filth of the flesh. In other words, not simply an external cleansing, but the answer of a, uh, answer of a good conscience towards God, which speaks of something deeper than the skin, the conscience, that goes under the skin, doesn't it? Those last words in verse 21, by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that tells us that baptism derives its efficacy from Jesus, who was wounded for our transgressions, raised again for our justification, and who is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. However, there are other verses in Scripture that seem to tell us that salvation from sin is a sovereign work of God without our cooperation in water baptism. For example, in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, it is written, For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And Acts chapter 16, verse 31, where it is written, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. And Romans chapter 10, verse 12 and 13, where it is written, For there is no difference between the Jew and the Greek, for the same Lord over all is rich unto all that call upon him. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. No mention of baptism in any of those verses. As such, what I, and no doubt many other Christians believe, is that having been chosen before the foundation of the world by God for salvation and everlasting life, God grants faith, uh, repentance and faith in his beloved son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Then what happens? Many years after you've been saved, people might reflect upon when they became Christians. Um, they might remember the time that God worked in their hearts and graciously saved them through the ministry of godly parents or the Sunday school teachers or even through the preaching of the gospel by a pastor. Or perhaps they might think back to the time that God spoke into their hearts through a gospel leaflet which some stranger gave to them on Pill Promenade or somewhere else. However, when it comes to being saved, I don't suppose that there are too many people who will think back to when they were baptised in water. Having said that, I do not advocate that you glibly say that water baptism has nothing to do with being saved and that baptism is nothing more than a reenactment of you being buried with Christ and raised up to newness of life in him. Surely, water baptism is more than that. After all, you cannot ignore verses like 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 21, where it is written, Baptism doth now save us.
and Acts chapter 22, verse 16, where Ananias said to the Apostle Paul, Arise and be baptised and wash away thy sins, calling on the name of the Lord. One of the main passages of scripture that is preached at baptismal services in order to demonstrate how water baptism is simply a visible reenactment of being buried with Jesus and being raised up to newness of life in him is Romans chapter 6. Yet that passage says nothing at all about water baptism simply being a sign of something spiritual that happened sometime earlier. You'd have to read through it all yourself, that chapter, Romans chapter 6. We don't have time to do it now, but I'll just read to you the first four verses and you can make of it what you will. And you tell me if baptism is simply a reenactment to of something that has already happened and nothing more than that I'll just read the first four verses what shall we say then shall we continue in sin that grace may abound God forbid how shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein know ye not that so many of us as were baptised or are baptised unto Jesus Christ, were baptised into his death. Therefore, we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we should walk in newness of life. To finish, what I would like to say that if nothing else we ought not simply think of water baptism as being a reenactment and a witness to an audience several months or even years after the event of having been buried with Christ and raised up to newness of life in him. It's not simply a bit of theatre where you reenact something that has happened whenever it was. Something spiritual that happened. I say that because in the Acts of the Apostles, repentant sinners were baptised in water, not months or years after being saved, but upon profession of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. For example, in Acts chapter 8, Philip the Evangelist proclaimed the gospel of Christ to an Ethiopian eunuch who was travelling home in his chariot, having come to Jerusalem to worship. In Acts chapter 8, verse 36 and 37, it is written, And as they went on their way, they came unto a certain water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What doth hinder me to be baptised? And Philip said, If thou believest with all thine heart, thou mayest. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. 
The eunuch was baptized in water at the time of believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. There was no audience for him to reenact his salvation to other than one or two servants perhaps. When you read verses of scripture like 1 Peter chapter 3 verse 21 which tell us that baptism doth now doth also now save us at the very least I would say that you do well to appreciate that water baptism is something special in that it is by it is a means by which God pours out his salvation grace it is a time of receiving spiritual blessings from the giver of every good gift and every perfect gift. It is a time of being built up in your most holy Christian faith, perhaps in much the same way that the Lord's Supper is not simply something that you do out of Christian duty or you attend out of Christian duty. The Lord's Supper is also a means of grace, a time of receiving tremendous spiritual blessings. Real spiritual blessings. The Lord's Supper is a time of being built up in your most holy Christian faith. It is a time of being drawn closer to your great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ, as you eat the bread and as you drink the wine in remembrance of him. Coming back to the Ethiopian eunuch, according to Acts chapter 8 and verse 39, he went on his way rejoicing after he was baptised. I think that is highly significant. I can only speak for myself, but I too went on my way rejoicing after my baptism. Rejoicing with a spiritual joy. Rejoicing in the Lord. Rejoicing in my great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ, who loved me and who gave himself for me. Maybe that is not your testimony. Maybe it is. Nevertheless, there is enough in the Bible for us to understand that salvation from sin and water baptism are inseparable. And therefore, All I can do as we close is repeat what the Bible teaches. Repent and be baptised every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Amen. close with 267. The head that once was crowned with thorns is crowned with glory now.